So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. It's James chapter 5. We will read from verses 7 through verse 11. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your holy word. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who is in our midst and every person that professes faith in Jesus. Holy Spirit, do that work which only you can do. Even draw people who have yet to believe to deep belief today. And Lord, whatever it is that we're struggling to wait for, are waiting in. I pray that you would comfort us now in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We don't like to wait, and I hate it. I, I am not very patient, and that manifests itself constantly. Let's start with the simple things. I don't like waiting for people in the grocery store. I don't like waiting in lines to deposit money at a bank. And I'll tell you this, I think it's true. If you get behind me, you've chosen the wrong line. I never pick the right line. I'll take the one that has the fewest people in it, I'll pull in there, and it's the one that takes the longest. At the grocery store, I'll see one person ahead of me, I'll get in line thinking I'm almost done, and all of a sudden they pull out a checkbook. They write checks, that takes a lot longer. I can't stand it. Coffee, I love coffee. My coffee maker at home makes a cup of coffee in less than one minute, but it's getting old. And now it's about a minute and a half. I told my wife, we need a new machine. I don't like waiting that long. Now it's silly, I know, but we don't like waiting. Going to an amusement park, I will avoid almost every great ride just because the lines are long. Dad, really, we get to go on that one again? Nobody's riding that one. Well, there's a reason why. Nobody wants to, but I hate lines. You do too. And waiting is not something that anybody really loves to do, but when it's over silly things like those I've mentioned, it's not that big a deal. But when it moves towards the more significant things in life, it gets a little bit more painful, and the waiting gets a little harder. Many in this congregation are waiting for things today that are hard to wait for. Some of you are waiting for a child to be born Others are waiting to get pregnant. Others had their children long ago, and they're waiting for their child to profess faith in Jesus. Or they're waiting for a child who did profess faith in Jesus to return to the faith. We're waiting. Some are waiting for that special someone, thinking by now I should be married. Others will go on a date and look at their phone, wondering when a text will come that says, I'd like to go out again. We wait. We wait at work, sometimes to find work, sometimes for a deal to come through, sometimes to be recognized, we wait. And we wait 
and we wait. And again, the consequences of what we're waiting for can get even more significant. Some of you are waiting right now for the doctor to give you a diagnosis. You're waiting for a report. You don't know when it will come. You hope it comes soon. You hope it says one thing and it might say another. In the last hour as I was preaching, I was just struck by how many people in this body that I've had the privilege of sitting with in really painful places, places they didn't expect to be, couples in my office that didn't expect to be in this kind of trouble, men mourning the loss of a young bride, and women mourning the loss of a husband of 55 years, waiting for the grief to be lifted, waiting for some sense of clarity on the questions that they're asking. Waiting's hard. Waiting is part of life, though. It is the reality of living in this broken world where things can go badly wrong. We could go on listing so many. But the people you're sitting next to right now, those in front of you, next to you, behind you, every one of them is waiting for something, probably multiple things. Some are pretty simple, but some are not. Some are profound. Some people are waiting for the sin of addiction to truly be lifted or new ways to battle it. Some are sitting here with secrets that they, they just are keeping to themselves and they, they don't think anybody would understand. Some are just hurting physically, emotionally, relationally, and they're tired, tired of waiting. James tells us in the passages we're looking at today, the verses we're looking at today, that waiting is going to be a reality in our life. He tells us throughout his letter the purpose of waiting. He tells us we're going to have to wait. But he gets more specific in these few verses about how we are to wait. And that's what I want to unpack for a little bit this morning. I want you to look with me as I reread some of the verses down to verse 8, beginning at verse 7. James says, be patient, therefore brothers. The first thing I want you to note is this. When James uses the word brothers, he is signifying that this group of people are Christians. In the section before, he stopped referring to them as brothers. I believe he was speaking to non-believers at the time. But now he moves back into this letter, which is primarily for believers, to talk to believers. So essentially he's saying, be patient, therefore Christians, until the coming of the Lord. That's an important phrase. Until the coming of the Lord. There's going to be a moment when Jesus Christ returns. I believe that James and other Bible time writers believe that Christ would return in their lifetime. He did not. We don't know when Christ is going to return, but we know that he will because he promised to do so. So James says, until the coming of the Lord, be patient Christians. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I want to talk about this phrase, establishing your hearts. For James, and indeed all of Scripture, this is the way that we are to wait. And the truth is, it's the only way we can wait. It is a waiting that is rooted deeply in Christ. 
It is a waiting that is ultimately secure. Some of your translations, whether it's NIV or another, might say, be strong. Or it might say, stand firm. Well, the truth is, standing strong, being courageous, standing firm means that your heart is established. It means that it's, it's on a firm foundation. And so I want to unpack this question. How are we to establish our hearts? What does that look like? And I simply want to mention three or four. The first is this. We need to recognize and be honest that waiting is a part of life, even for the Christian. You know that's true. But sometimes we live in shock and denial that these trials, that these challenges have come our way. We need to admit that until we die or until Jesus Christ returns, we are going to be facing all sorts of challenges that make us wait. In other words, there is a rhythm to our life, this side of heaven, that is going to cause us to have to wait, to cause, that will cause us to pause because we don't know what next step to take. That is a part of living in this world. It is a rhythm and there is actually a reason for it. Here's the challenge. God doesn't always tell us the reason for why we have to wait. And to be honest, we don't like that. Why? Because waiting is hard. So first, we have to recognize we're going to wait. My pastor in St. Louis used to say it this way. He used to say, you know, you're either in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or heading towards a crisis. Every one of you and the people all around you are the same way. Now those crises vary. Some in this body are in extremely difficult places right now. They have hit a wall that is hard for them. Others are coming out of one. They're looking back saying, I, I thank God that we are through that or almost through that. And I sense his peace. And others have this sense of, it's kind of going well right now. Do you ever feel that way? It's kind of it's too good. I'm really a little bit nervous about what's coming. Anybody ever feel that way? It's just too good, something's coming. Well, you know what? You're actually wise. There probably is something coming. You should not live in paranoia, but you're wise enough to know that's the rhythm of life. It's part of it. That's the first thing. We have to admit it, recognize it. Second, and this is extremely hard for us. We talk about it all the time, but it's very hard. We have to admit our complete dependence on God. While we wait, having established hearts, we have to admit our complete dependence on God. Dependent on what? Because of time, I'm going to say it this way, everything. You and I are dependent on God for everything. You, you kind of know that's true, but God knows your every breath. God made you. He knows your days. He knows everything about you. You and I are completely dependent on God, even to have an established heart. Now, we don't like that. You know why? Because we love control. You know how I know you love control? Because you love the container store. And the container store is an illusion of control. I like it too. If I could just get everything ordered, if I could just get everything lined up, if my children go to this school and do this activity and have these friends, it'll be perfect. We 
love control. And the reason we like control is because we think if we're in control, we will ultimately be able to dissipate some of the waiting we have to do, or at least it will lessen the intensity of it. We, we can't. We are not in control. And so as we wait, we need to recognize our dependence on him. That is why James give us, gives us this illustration of the farmer. Look with me again at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Not many of us are farmers. You, some of you may have land that people farm. Some of you may be pretend farmers with your gardens in front of your house or behind in your backyard. What are you thinking about with the world right now? I mean, it's been 81 and 79 and 78. What are your flowers doing right now? Are tulips beginning to come up? Yeah, how far away are we from Easter? And Easter's early this year. It's February 21st. Those things should be in the ground. How much control do you have over that? Do you go outside and put ice on the ground, trying to keep them under so you can be the only one with tulips in the spring? Some of you are like, that's a pretty good idea, Mark. No, <laughs> you're not in control. I'm going to be here Easter Sunday. Many of you will be. You'll be in guests. It'll be a great day. It's probably going to snow <laughs> here in Dallas. You're not in control. The image of the farmer is powerful because a farmer knows I can do nothing to give these seeds everything they need to grow. I can do nothing. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't do anything. He plants the seed. He creates a soil to the best of his ability, but then he waits. And what does he wait for? James tells us the early and the late rains. It means the spring rains and the fall rains. Now, something interesting about this, every time that phrase is used in the Old Testament, the early rains and the late rains, it is speaking of the Lord's redemption. Every time. Every Old Testament passage, that's what it's speaking about. Pretty powerful. James is saying, look, as you wait patiently, as you endure suffering, you need to admit that you're not in control. Like a farmer, you simply must wait for God to do what only God can do. You can't make your child love Jesus. You can't make your spouse love Jesus. You can't even make yourself love Jesus. You can't establish your own heart. Only God can. That's hard for me to believe. Every day but I know it's true. Here's what I mean. In some ways, because of my job, I'm a farmer. Now, when I get on an airplane and I have somebody sit next to me, if I don't want the conversation to end immediately, I don't tell them I'm a pastor. A wall would go up. So sometimes I say interesting things that are true, but just a little nuanced. For example, somebody says, well, what do you do for a living? I'm a shepherd. 
Oh, that's interesting. Well, what, what's your flock look like? Oh, they're a mess. <laughs> yeah, they are. They love the container store. Anyway, moving on. Or I might say, I'm a farmer. Now that's always interesting. They look at my hands. There's not much dirt under the nails. I don't really have a red neck. I'm really, I don't look like a farmer. So I begin to explain. Well, I do, I throw out seeds. I love this pulpit. It's the only one like it in the world. An architect here in our body, he designed it. The very bottom of it is cast iron. And if you look closely sometime, you'll see that there's wheat growing out of it. What it symbolizes is that the per person who's behind this pulpit has one responsibility, and that is to throw out the word of God, to throw out the seeds. For a long time, I believed that I could do something that I can't do, and that is change you. I did. I felt responsibility for that. Then I went on sabbatical, and the Lord reminded me, only I can change a man. Only I can change a woman. If you ever want to see the bulletin I'm using on a given Sunday morning, I write it almost always in red at the top of the page. Only God has the power to change a man. And you know what? It's true. It doesn't mean I could just sit over there and do nothing and let 30 minutes go by with nobody standing here. There's responsibility. My responsibility is to come and throw, to study, to teach. But deep down, I cannot do what only God can do. I can't change you. I can't change your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents. I can't even change me. But God can. And God does. And he is doing it right now. And I believe that. But we have to admit that we're in a world where we're going to have to wait and in waiting, we must admit that we cannot do anything apart from him. He is the one who establishes our hearts. He gives us a third idea, though, of what this looks like. And it's actually in looking at others. And I think this is very dangerous, but very important. Notice what James does. After talking about the farmers and the patient way in which they look to the Lord for the rain, he then says in verse 10... As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Okay, here's what James is saying. Like you, Christians, because he's writing to Christians, there are people who have been on this journey before you like a farmer, wait patiently, endure. You're not in control. But also like the prophets who were before you. Now think about the prophets. The prophets had the responsibility of proclaiming the word of God. And so often it fell on deaf ears. So often they were persecuted. In fact, Jesus even says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you falsely for all kinds of evil. He goes on to say, the prophets were persecuted in the same way before you. Those prophets, those prophets proclaiming the word of God experienced suffering and had to wait for relief. Sometimes that relief only came upon their death, even dying for the name of the holy God. But God's presence was with them 
And because of his grace and his glory, their hearts were firmly established. And they often went to death standing up, waiting for the Lord. And then James gives us the story of Job. What an amazing book. A story that reveals incredible suffering. And and a group of friends trying to bring counsel to this man who has lost everything. And yet, his life was a life of which God's grace was sufficient for him. You know, one thing that happens when we look to others, particularly those in the Word of God, is that we see his faithfulness through and through. We see his faithfulness being manifest, but we don't always see the Lord removing the pain or the obstacle. It's often the obstacle, it's often the pain that causes people to draw near to the Lord. When I have the privilege of entering into hospital rooms, or waiting rooms, or parlors at a funeral home, or maybe over a cup of coffee or lunch with people in this body, and we begin to talk about this journey, this side of heaven, it's amazing to see the people who have gone through those really hard times. It's amazing to see the people who are going through those really hard times. And what you see is men and women being matured by God to trust in every word that God gives. In our body, we have people that have lost children. In our body, we have people right now facing horrific diseases. In our body, right now, we have people who are on their knees day and night for their grandchildren. We have people on their knees day and night for the leadership of our country. God hears those prayers. And in most cases, what the people talk about isn't some miraculous answer. It's his presence in the midst of the suffering. His enduring presence, establishing our hearts that we might endure the suffering. Early on in those trials, The question is often asked of me and of pastors and probably of you if you're walking with people who have been through a lot of pain. Why? You ever ask that question? It's a fair question. The truth is, so often we don't know. I had to learn to get comfortable with people who are in deep, deep pain of just simply being present and saying, I don't know why. I also had to learn that it's not the best thing for me to then say immediately, but God has a plan and this is good for you. It doesn't help. It feels like a a huge bottle of salt without the lid on it just poured into an open wound. The truth is, And we know it this side ahead of the trial, ahead of the waiting, that God does have a plan. Waiting is part of his providence. Pain is part of his providence. But he never promises to take it away, not this side of heaven. But he promises always to give us himself. Always. 
He will never leave you or forsake you, even if you have felt left and forsaken. He can't. And so the Lord gives us this, 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 these means to come together. He gives us the examples of the prophets before us. He gives us the story of Job and his life. But he also gives us one another. And the temptation is that when we hear a story about somebody whose faith is so amazing, is to walk out of a sanctuary like this and say, I'm going to go be like Job, or I'm going to be like Jeremiah, or I'm going to be like Isaiah. The truth is, you won't be able to. You are dependent on God to establish your heart. And the heroes aren't those prophets. The hero isn't Job. The hero is the God that they trusted in. The hero is Jesus. Now I want you to think about the waiting in Jesus' life. Go through and read the Gospels. And here again, Jesus saying things like, woman, my time has not yet come. Think about Jesus waiting in the garden, talking to his father saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. Now think about the hours Jesus spent waiting on the cross. Suffering physical pain beyond imagination. Waiting for his heart to stop beating. Saying all the things that were ordained for him to say. Things that he said so that you and I would never have to. Such as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then finally, hanging there, he says, it is finished. And what that meant was that the reason he came, the reason he was born, the reason he walked upon this earth and suffered uh, through painful temptation, never once sinning, was so that he could live the life, the perfect life, and die the death that you and I deserve to die, so that he could receive the full wrath, the just wrath of the Father, that all who trusted in him for all eternity would suffer no more, would wait no more, would never again say, I hurt, I'm fearful, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. This is the hope we have in Jesus. It's a real hope. It's the only ultimate hope. Have you trusted in him? All around the world, we're singing about this one because this one is the way, the truth, and the life. Have you trusted in him? He's made himself available for you. If you don't know him, think deeply about the things you've heard today which speak of this love, this mercy. If you know him already, Think for a moment about the unfinished task and that the Lord has given you himself. And because your heart is still beating this side of heaven, waiting for him to call you home or to return again, you still have the privilege 
of showing the world that you have an established heart. And when people see something different in you, you have the beautiful privilege of saying, God did it. He's the one who established my heart. There was proof of that in the baptism this morning. The couple said the prayer for their child. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You know what that means? That together we all are praying that one day that child will pray for a new heart. Not a heart that's just getting a little better, but a new heart. Christian, your heart is established in God. Live out of that new identity and tell the world you're his. As you wait, just as the world has to wait, tell the world you're his. We're going to close by singing the hymn that I mentioned as the musicians come forward and as we sing it, think deeply of these words being sung by missionaries all the way back to 1929, 1930. I'm going to keep us seated through the first verse and chorus, then I will stand. And I really invite you to sing loud and think deeply about every word printed before you.